Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Old Greek Education by John Petland Mahaffey published in 1882. This book looks at the education taught by the ancient Greeks. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who has sent me thank you messages during the week. If I have missed your name, please send me an email as I'd love to say thank you. Thank you to Nicole for your Insta story on Instagram. And thank you also to Ember1203 for your lovely message on Instagram. I'm glad the podcast has helped you through your time in quarantine. Thanks also goes to iTunes listeners, SJT3377, Gotham Kitty, Swellman2009, and Duxter12. Each of your reviews were very thoughtful, and I am very grateful. And thank you to the Anchor supporters and Patreons that continue to support the show. It really does help me to continue to bring more episodes out for you. 
if you do appreciate the podcast, a lovely way to say thank you is to share it with a friend who may also need some help with their sleep. If you would like, you can also leave a review on your podcast player of choice. You're also welcome to say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter at boytosleep and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Old Greek Education by J.P. Mahaffey Published in New York in 1882 Introduction We hear it often repeated that human nature is the same at all times and in all places and this is urged at times and places where it is so manifestly false that we feel disposed peremptorily to deny it when paraded to us as a general truth. The fact is that only in its lower activities does human nature show any remarkable uniformity. So far as men are mere animals, they have strong resemblances, and in savages even their minds seem to originate the same fancies in various ages and climes. But when we come to higher developments, to the spiritual element in individuals, to the social and political relations of civilized men, the pretended truism gives way more and more to the opposite truth, that mankind varies at all times and in all places, as no two individuals, when carefully examined, are exactly alike, so no two societies of men are even nearly alike. And at the present time, there is probably no more fertile cause of political and legislative blundering than the assumption that the Constitution, successfully worked out by one people, can be transferred by the force of a mere decree to its neighbours. All the recent experiments in state reform have been based on this assumption, as if the transference of a House of Commons in any real sense were not as impossible as the transference of Eton and of Oxford to some foreign society. Although, therefore, we cannot deny that past history contains many fruitful lessons for the battering of our own time, it is not unlikely that the tendency of the present widely informed but hasty age is to exaggerate the likeliness of various epochs and to overrate the force of analogy in social and political reasoning. 
historical parallels are generally striking only upon a certain point. A deeper knowledge discloses elements of contrast, wide differences of motive, great variations in human feeling. But as we go back to simpler states of life or earlier stages of development, the argument from analogy becomes stronger and the lessons we may derive from history, though less striking, are more trustworthy. This is peculiarly the case with the problem of education, as handled by civilized nations in various ages. The material to be worked upon is that simpler and fresher human nature in which varieties are due only to heredity and not to the numerous artificial stimulants and restraints which every society of mature men invents for itself. The delights and disappointments of education have also remained the same, at least in many respects. The conflict of theoretical and practical educators and the failure of splendid schemes for the reform of society by a systematic training of youth mark every overripe civilization. Here, then, if anywhere, we may gain a distinct advantage by contemplating the problems which we ourselves are solving under discussion in a remote society. The more important and permanent elements will stand out clearer when freed from the interests and prejudices of our own day and from the necessities of our own situation and thus we may be taught to regain freedom of judgment and escape from the iron despotism of a traditional system. For if it be the case that in no department of our own life are we more thoroughly enslaved than on the question of education, if it be true that we are obliged here to submit our children to the ignorance and prejudice of nurses, governesses, priests, pedants, all following more or less stupid traditions and all coerced by shackles, which they want either the knowledge or the power to break, then any inquiry which may lead us to consider freely and calmly what is right and what is not right, what is possible and what is not possible, in education cannot but have real value, apart from purely historical or learned considerations. In fact, the main object of this book 
is to interest men who are not classical scholars and who are not professional educators in the theory of education as treated by that people which is known to have done more than any other in fitting its members for the higher ends and enjoyments of life. The Greeks were far behind us in the mechanical aids to human progress. They understood not the use of electricity or of steam or of gunpowder or of printing. But in spite of this, the Greek public was far better educated than we are nay, to some extent, because of this it was better educated. For Greek life afforded proper leisure for thorough intellectual training, and this includes, first of all, such political training as is strange to almost the whole of Europe. Secondly, moral training of so high a kind as to rival at times the light of revelation. Thirdly, social training to something higher than music and feasting by way of recreation. And fourthly, artistic training, which, while it did not condescend to bad imitations of great artists, taught the public to understand and to love true and noble ideas. Why must these great ends of education be obscured or lost by the modern wonders of discovery, which should make them more easy of attainment and wider in circulation? Were the Greeks better off in education than we are, And if so, why were they better off? Or is all this alleged Greek superiority an idle dream of the pedants, with no solid basis in facts? If it is real, can we not discover the secret of their superiority and use it with far wider and deeper effect in our Christian society? Or is human nature of narrow and fixed capacity? And does the addition of wide ranges of positive science and of various tongues mar irrevocably the cultivation of the pure reason and of the aesthetic faculty? These are the problems which will occupy the following pages not in their abstract form, they will be considered in close relation to the success or failure of the old Greeks in discussing and solving them. There have been only two earlier nations and one later which could compete with the Greeks in their treatment of this perpetual problem in human progress. We have first the Egyptian nation, which by its thorough and widely diffused culture attained a duration of national prosperity 
and happiness, perhaps never since equaled, isolated from other civilized races by geographical position, by language, and in consequence by social institutions, the Egyptians prosecuted internal development more assiduously than in the want of mere conquering races. The few foreign possessions acquired by the Egyptians were never assimilated, and the civilization of the Nile remained isolated and unique. We have reason to know that this refined social life, which is perpetuated in pictures on the monuments of the land, this large and various literature, of which so many fragments have been recovered in our century, was not created without a diffused and systematic education. In Plato's laws, the training of their young children in elementary science is described as far superior to anything in Greece. But unfortunately, the materials for any estimate of Egyptian education in its process are wanting. We can see plainly its great national effects. We have even seen some details as to the special training in separate institutions of a learned and literary class, but nothing more has yet been recovered. If we knew the various steps by which Moses became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, an interesting field of comparison would be opened to us. And here, no doubt, we should find some of our own difficulties discussed and perhaps solved by early sages still more by an enlightened public opinion, showing itself in the establishment of sound traditions, and no doubt from the dense population, the subdivision of property and of labour, and the absence of a great territorial aristocracy. The education of the Egyptians must have corresponded to our middle class and primary systems, together with special institutions for the higher training of the professions and of the literary caste. If we could command our material, we might seek elsewhere for analogies to the education of our nobility and higher gentry. We know through Greek and Roman sources, as well as through the heroic poetry of the Shanami, that the Aryan nobles who became, under Cyrus, the rulers of Western Asia, were in character, as they were in blood, allied to the Germanic chiefs and Norse Vikings, with their love of daring adventure, their chivalry, and their intense loyalty to their appointed sovereign. 
in these qualities, they were strangely opposed to the democratic Greeks, on whom they looked with contempt, while they were appreciated in return only by a few such men as Herodotus and Xenophon. Indeed, such devotion to their sovereign has made them leap overboard to lighten his ship, in a storm was confounded by the Greeks with slavish submission, oriental prostrations and other signs of humiliation. Nevertheless, the men whom the Greeks long dared not look in the face, the conquerors of half the known world, the successful rivals of the Romans for the dominion of the East, faced death under Zeres and the last Darius with other feelings than those of slavish submission. Herodotus, in his interesting and sympathetic account of them, says their children's education consisted of three things, to ride, to shoot, and to tell the truth. If he had added a chivalrous loyalty to their kings like that of the French nobles in the last century, he would have completed the picture and sketched a training which many as English gentlemen considers little short of perfection. The Romans are the only other ancient people who stand near enough to us to suggest an inquiry into their education. And it may be said that they combined the dignity of noble traditions with the practical instincts of a successful trading people. Hence Roman education, if carried on with system, ought of all others to correspond with that of Englishmen, who should combine the same qualities in carrying out an analogous policy and in filling to some extent a similar position in the world. But so closely was all Roman culture based on Greek books and models that although every people must develop individual features of its own, and the Romans had plenty of them, as we may see from the Quintilian, any philosophical knowledge of Roman education must depend upon a previous knowledge of the Greeks. In many respects, the Romans were a race more congenial to the English, and hence by us more easily understood. In the coarser and stronger elements of human character, in directness and love of truth, in a certain contempt of aesthetics and of speculation, in a blunt assertion of the supremacy of practical questions, in a want of sympathy and often a stupid ignorance and neglect of the character and requirements of subject races, 
the Romans are the true forerunners of the English in history. Burdened as we are with these defects of national character, the products of the subtler and more genial, if less solid and truthful, Hellenic race, are particularly well worth our consideration. This has been so thoroughly recognised by thoughtful men in our generation as to require no further support by argument. It only remains that each of our Hellenists should do his best in some distinct line to make the life of the Greeks known to us with fairness and accuracy. We find in Homer, especially in the Iliad indications of the plainest kind, the Greek babies were like the babies of modern Europe, equally troublesome, equally delightful to their parents, equally uninteresting to the rest of society. The famous scene in the sixth book of the Iliad, when Hector's infant, Astyanax, screams at the sight of his father's waving crest, and the hero lays his helmet on the ground, that he may laugh and weep over the child. And the love and tenderness of Andromach and her laments in the twenty-second book are familiar to all. She foresees the hardships and unkindnesses to her elfin boy, who was wont upon his father's knees to eat the purest marrow and the rich fat of sheep. And when sleep came upon him, and he ceased his childish play, he would lie in the arms of his nurse, on a soft cushion, satisfied with every comfort. So again, a protecting goddess is compared to a mother keeping the flies from her sleeping infant, and a precious friend to a little girl who, running beside her mother, begs to be taken up, holding her dress and delaying her, and with tearful eyes the child keeps looking up, till the mother denies her no longer. These are only stray references, and yet they speak no less clearly than if we had asked for an express answer to a direct inquiry. So we have the hesitation of the murderers sent to make away with the infant Sipsalus, who had been foretold to portend danger to the Corinthian Herods of that day. The smile of the baby Unmans or should we rather say, unbrutes. The first ruffian and the task is passed on from man to man. This story of Herodotus is a sort of natural Greek parallel to the great Shakespearean scene 
where another child sways his intended torturer with an eloquence more conscious and explicit, but not perhaps more powerful than the radiant smile of the Greek baby. Thus Euripides, the great master of pathos, represents Iphigenia, bringing her infant brother, Orestes, to plead for her with that unconsciousness of sorrow which pierces us to the heart more than the most affecting rhetoric. In modern art, a little child, playing about its dead mother and waiting for its contemptment, for her awaking, is perhaps the most powerful appeal to human compassion, which we are able to conceive. On the other hand, the troubles of infancy were then as now very great. We do not indeed hear of croup or teething or measles or whooping cough, but these are occasional matters and count as nothing beside the inexorable tyranny of a sleepless baby. For then as now, mothers and nurses had a strong prejudice in favour of carrying about restless children and so soothing them to sleep. The unpractical Plato requires that in his fabulous republic two or three stout nurses shall be in readiness to carry about each child because children gain spirit and endurance by this treatment. What they really gain is a gigantic power of torturing their mothers. Most children can readily be taught to sleep in a bed, or even in an armchair, but an infant once accustomed to being carried about will insist upon it, and so it came that Greek husbands were obliged to relegate their wives to another sleeping room, where the nightly squalling of the furious infant might not disturb the master as well as the mistress of the house. But the Greek gentleman was able to make good his damaged rest by a midday siesta, and so required but little sleep at night. The modern father in Northern Europe, with his whole days working and waking, is therefore in a more disadvantageous position. Of course, very fashionable people kept nurses, and it was the highest tone at Athens to have a Spartan nurse for the infants just as an English nurse is sought out among foreign noblesse. We are told that these women made the child hardier, that they used less swathing and bandaging, and allowed free play for the limbs, and this, like the Spartan physical training, was approved of and admired by the rest of the Greek public, 
though its imitation was never suggested save in the unpractical speculations of Plato. Whether they also approved of a diet of marrow and mutton, which Homer, in the passage just cited, considers the luxury of princes, does not appear. As Homer was the Greek Bible, an inspired book containing perfect wisdom on all things, human and divine, there must have been many orthodox parents who followed his prescription, but we hear no approval or censure of such diet. Possibly marrow may have represented our cod liver oil in strengthening delicate infants, but as the Homeric men fed far, more exclusively on meat than their historical successes, some vegetable substitute such as olive oil must have been in use later on. Even within our memory, mutton boiled in milk was commonly recommended by physicians for the delicacy now treated by cod liver oil the supposed strengthening of children by air and exposure, or by early neglect of their comforts, was as fashionable at Sparta as it is with many modern theorists, and it probably led in both cases to the same results, the extinction of the weak and delicate, these theorists parade the cases of survival of stout children, that is, their exceptional soundness, as the effect of this harsh treatment, and so satisfy themselves that experience confirms their views. Now, with the Spartans, this was logical enough, for as they professed and desired nothing, but physical results, as they despised intellectual qualities and esteemed obedience to the highest of moral ones. They were perhaps justified in their proceeding. So thoroughly did they advocate the production of healthy citizens for military purposes that they were quite content that this sickly should die. In fact, in the case of obviously weak and deformed infants, they did not hesitate to expose them. The external circumstances determining a Greek child's education was somewhat different from ours. We must remember that all old Greek life, except in rare cases, such of that of Alice, of which we know nothing, was distinctly town life, and so naturally Greek schooling was day schooling, from which the children returned to care of their parents. To hand over boys, far less girls, to the charge of a boarding school was perfectly unknown, and would no doubt have been gravely censored. Orphans were placed under the care of their nearest male relative. 
even when their education was provided, as it was in some cases, by the state. Again, as regards the age of going to school, it would naturally be early, seeing that day schools may well include infants of tender age, and that in Greek households neither father nor mother was often able or disposed to undertake the education of the children. Indeed, we find it universal that even the knowledge of the letters and reading were obtained from a schoolmaster. All these circumstances would point to an early beginning of Greek school life, whereas, on the other hand, the small number of subjects required in those days, the absence from the program of various languages, of most exact sciences, and of general history and geography, made it unnecessary to begin so early or work so hard as their unfortunate children have to do. Above all, there were no competitive examinations except in athletics and music. The Greeks never thought of promoting a man for dead knowledge, but for his living grasp of science or of life. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story and are feeling a little drowsy. You're always welcome to listen to another episode until I return with the next episode, just to help you fall asleep. Until then, good night.